Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Nicole Lippman Barilli. Dr. Barilli is a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy and the treatment of anxiety and mood disorders. Dr. Brilli is an OCD specialist and has extensive clinical experience treating OCD and other compulsive disorders. She has an interest in understanding the diet-mental health relationship and communicating the research about this relationship accurately to the public via social media. She also makes content about the psychology of misinformation to help others discern between accurate scientific information and pseudoscientific thinking and practices. In the episode, Dr. Burley discusses current research around diet and mental health, what holistic psychologist actually means, how to identify unscientific accounts on social media, and more. Before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I used to think eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive, versus buying the same things at my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Dr. Barilli. Enjoy! Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Hi, Brooke. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about our conversation today. We were just chatting about how you are on the East Coast and I'm on the West Coast and how we kind of wish we we wish we could trade places. Yeah. <laughs> I actually had a similar conversation with a guest last week who is also on the East Coast and wants to trade places. And so it's just that grass is always greener thing, right? That and also you're talking to us during winter. I know. So I think- it's, it's also the timing of things, definitely. That is a good point. Although California has been getting record rains. I don't That's know if you've what, seen. Yeah. So we had this one spout before. I mean, I've never seen so much rain in California, which is a good thing. We need it. But yeah. then it's supposed to start up again today through, I think, a couple of days, just solid rain. So it's funny because people in California talk about rain the way people on the East Coast talk about 
a nor'easter or something, right? Like, wow, like it's this yeah. big, massive event here. <laughs> My husband yeah. and I are like, should we make plans? Should we right. go somewhere? Can we even like, what are we doing this weekend? You gotta get your food at the grocery yeah, store. Exactly. Too. Like, yeah. Put the car away, lock it up. Like, we're just yeah. gonna coop up inside. But oh, funny. so excited to connect. I would love if you could start out by telling us a bit about yourself and what led you to become a clinical psychologist. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm lucky because I have the family that I do. So my, my dad is a psychologist and I recall pretty early on around like maybe 11 or 12 years old, I used to help him separate out his paper notes. And he used to tell me about things that he used to do with patients. And he was also an OCD, he's also an OCD specialist. So he does what I do. I do what he does. Um, so he would talk to me about the kind of sessions that he has and OCD is really unique. Um, and so I just thought that that was the coolest job ever. And I, and I really didn't entertain anything else. And I really kind of had my mindset that that's exactly what I wanted to do also. And I'm really glad, um, because everything I did from that point forward, just validated everything. I always, I've always, always, always have had an interest in why people make the decisions that they do. I'm always interested in like, you know, that people lived such vastly different lives and I, I'm just very curious about people's behavior. So it, it really just fit so nicely with me. So I feel very lucky in the sense that I had a very early, um, like decision-making process and my, my, you know, parents really fostered that. Um, and yeah, I, I, so basically that was kind of easy for me to make that decision and sort of go, go forth and really just go along with the, the plan, you know, the academic sort of plan. Um, and then I kind of fell into the internship that I had. So I became an OCD specialist. That wasn't my, my plan necessarily going into it. I, I wanted to work elsewhere, but I ended up getting the training that I did at my internship and my postdoc. Um, very glad that I did because I got really great clinical experience and training uh, that allows me to do the kind of work that I do with patients today. And then got an interest in nutrition fairly soon after experiencing my own health-related issues. So around like mid twenties, I started developing symptoms of PCOS. So I would, I started having, um, cystic acne that was really painful hair growth in places that women don't want to have, you know, hair growth. And I was just sort of like suppressing symptoms and I didn't really know what to do. Eventually I got tested and got the diagnosis and really randomly stumbed upon uh, what, what I know now is to be just a, an elimination, food elimination challenge. Um, and at the point that I decided to do that, I, I didn't get my period for almost like nine or 10 months. And at that point I was getting just concerned because I, I really didn't know what was going on. Um, and no joke on the 21st day, it was a 21 day challenge on day 21. I got my period. And, um, the only variable that I changed in that time was, was my diet. I really did a complete overhaul of my diet. Cause I was just not really eating well up until that point. And so I kind of taught myself like how to cook, what macros are. Like I really taught myself how to eat in the way that we know now is, you know, healthy. Um, and that just led me on another journey to understand the relationship between diet and PCOS. That was like my initial interest there. And then I got to this point where I am now, because now I just have become um, slightly obsessed with just the connection related to diet and mental health. And my interest has just led me up 
to this point. Hmm. There are a lot of people, as I'm sure you know, on social media making big claims about diet and mental health. Uh, You say in your Instagram profile, giving you evidence-based information and resources for your mental health. So key term there, (laughs) evidence-based. What do we currently know about diet and mental health? How strong is the connection? I mean, are people making kind of wild leaps or are those justified? What do we know based on research? Sure. Yeah. Let's talk about, I'll talk about the research first and I'll connect that with some of the claims that are being made online. So the current research that we have to date, so we have um, some observational research, we which would include things like prospective cohort studies. So these are studies that look at a group of people over time and see what happens um, over time when a person eats a certain diet, does that lead to eventually some kind of mental health diagnosis? So we're just sort of looking at like it's, it's, it's studies that are observational in nature, but it gives us an, a, an idea of are there potential relationships that are occurring over time. And those are, those are decent studies that we currently have available to us. We also have randomized, some randomized control trials and those interventions Um, are basically looking at strategically changing a person's diet in either a depressed population or a more anxious population and seeing if a dietary intervention then leads to, let's say, a decrease in symptomology, a decrease in depression, or a decrease in anxiety. So we have varied studies now up to date that suggest that maybe there is some sort of relationship between diet and one's mental health, more so related to depression. The the research is more concentrated as it looks at diet and depression outcomes. And within those studies, there's actually a lot of variability. So there are studies that suggest that there's this positive relationship, meaning that a healthier dietary pattern over time suggests that there's an associated decreased risk of developing depression later in life. And there's other studies that don't show that relationship at all. So there's definitely a mix of studies currently. And a lot of that has to do with a number of factors. So there's methodological concerns. There's there's different ways that studies are measuring depression or measuring anxiety. There's different ways, um, you know, so quantifying that. And then also um, there's differences in the intervention studies in terms of what kind of interventions they're also adding on to a dietary intervention that potentially also creates those results. So the conclusion that I have kind of come up with so far is that for diet and depression kind of exclusively, it seems that it may be likely or may be possible if someone has mild depression, subclinical depression, so subclinical meaning like you're not yet meeting a diagnosis of depression, but you're experiencing some symptoms that are kind of mild, like just under threshold. So anyone who's in that boat, mild symptoms, doesn't have any significant psychiatric history, doesn't have any sort of significant medical history that also has inflammatory conditions, then perhaps changing your diet may help with depression. And also the other caveat to that is particularly if your diet before you changed it consisted of more ultra processed foods, uh, less fiber, and you change that, right, to meet what we would consider part of like a healthy dietary pattern, right, according to the guidelines, there seems to be potentially potential benefit 
there. So that means a lot of different things because obviously I put a lot of caveats on there, right? So what it also suggests is that for worsening symptoms of depression, right? So the severity of a person's depression, the severity of a person's anxiety is a variable that's going to dictate whether or not changing your diet is going to actually lead to symptom decrease or a decreased risk of developing depression. So for moderate to severe depression, we're not really seeing that dietary interventions are having any sort of significant effect. And the things that we know work really well for that are things like therapy, potentially psychiatric medications, other, other therapeutic interventions are more appropriate for that. The intervention studies, I'm, most people may be familiar with the SMILES trial, that that's a very popular randomized control trial that gets talked a lot as it relates to diet and depression. And there's, there was a really strong effect size within that study. And the study basically was they took a population of depressed pe- individuals who are sort of mild to moderately depressed, and they split them up into two groups. One was the diet group, one was the control group. And the control group was a social support group. So the diet change group got instructions from a registered dietitian met with them seven times for one hour sessions where they were given instructions to adhere as most as they can to a Mediterranean style diet. They were given recipes, meal plans, food hampers, and obviously these multiple sort of check-ins. The social support condition met at the same frequency that the diet group did, but they didn't do any sort of intervention sort of talk. The only thing that was done during those social groups was just talking about outside topics. So after three weeks, the reports in the SMILES trial indicate that actually a good proportion of the participants in the diet group ended up being in remission from their depression symptoms, which initially is very impressive. That's kind of exactly what we would hope to see from some kind of an intervention. But if you look at the details, I think what is really actually happening is it's less of diet as the intervention alone. And there's all these other behavioral interventions that are being introduced, support interventions that are being introduced into the diet group. There's a lot of interventions that are going on beyond just a dietary modification that I personally think are creating more of those positive results, simply because of also things that we see in clinical practice and things that we know in other research related to psychology. So I think that we have to be careful when it comes to actually interpreting the results of a lot of these studies. And that's why I try to say that there's actually a lot of conditions that are important that would potentially yield a difference in someone's depression if they were just using diet as an intervention. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what it seems like is that these outcomes from different studies get very conflated and blown up on social media. So you just made a very, uh, you know, you distinguish between mild depression and moderate to severe depression and how diet may impact both or not. But then somebody else may say just depression, just the one statement of depression. So this, you know, new study shows diet plays a role in depression therefore leading everybody to believe just change your diet and that will help with your depression. Is that kind of the big issue you see? 
Very much, very much the big issue. And I think the, you know, I'm a practitioner, right? So I, I, I do clinical work with people, which means I intimately see how people are affected by mental illness. And a lot of the reductionist prescription online is simply change your diet to fit a Mediterranean style pattern and your depression will get better. And there's a lot that actually goes into that prescription. You know, where you're making a lot of assumptions by telling someone that. Like, for instance, you don't know their financial situation. It's not very easy for just anyone to overhaul their entire diet. And the other thing you're suggesting is that it's easy for that person to go to the grocery store and then access those kinds of foods. If anyone's ever met a depressed person or has been depressed themselves, know that everything is extremely effortful. A person typically has very low motivation. Things are very difficult. So it's, it's, it seems like this simple, easy prescription to give people. But if you don't work with a clinical population, you are missing the really all of the details surrounding what that means to actually tell someone that. So I think there's a, a number of reasons why that's that's really wrong way to communicate to people. A because it's reductionist. B um, I think it ignores class issues, socioeconomic status, um, and I also think that it's just not representative of what we should be recommending to people who are actually depressed because we know that a lot of other interventions are way more powerful than diet. Mm -hmm. And so you would start with the more powerful ones that may be more accessible to somebody who's moderate to severely depressed rather than overhaul your entire diet, change everything you're eating, start cooking more, go to the grocery store more you know, that's not the most accessible treatment. So you would start with the most accessible treatment and then see how that goes. And eventually down the line, you could try to unveil some type of dietary swaps or something. Is that kind of your method or like there's a time and a place for it down the road or not even for some people? So in my clinical practice, I barely talk about diet and that's very reflective of maybe two things. One is, is when, you know, by the time someone contacts me, the house is on fire usually. And so there are way other priorities beyond diet. The other thing that I think is helpful for people to know and understand here is that depression manifests very differently from person to person. One symptom, or let's say a common dysfunction that tends to happen for people is these um, disruptions in eating. So some people overeat, overconsume, and some people lose their appetite and don't eat. So if I'm working with someone who has moderate to severe depression, as an example, and they're under eating, it would be unethical for me to say, okay, now we're just going to focus on a Mediterranean style diet and make sure you have that to a T. That wouldn't really make any sense given where the person currently is. So you have to, you know, treatment is tailored towards whatever the presentation is for that person, whatever their needs are, whatever their resources are, you know, talk about like, this is what it means to have a holistic approach. Um, so it would be inappropriate to suggest to someone with moderate to severe depression, you know, that we're going to do your diet, we're going to overhaul your diet first. And this is what's going to happen. It's 
the things that are appropriate and ethical to to do with that person is therapeutic interventions like therapy, but potentially talk about psychiatric interventions, look at their support system, right? There's so many other things to do. Make sure they're actually eating enough before you're even telling them what to actually eat, right? So there's all these things to really consider. And so that, and that's another reason why these claims are online are so reductionist and they really, to me, don't make any sense. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. Now, back to the episode. You just kind of smirked when you said holistic approach and I don't, people couldn't see your face, but I saw it and I think I know where you're going with this. Uh, so there are a lot of doctors, right? Who will say we take a holistic approach. So they're the functional medicine doctors or the integrative physicians, whatever they call themselves. And then there will be like the holistic psychologist, which kind of for you must be frustrating because the implication is you're not holistic because that's not in your title. If you're a psychologist, right? Somebody else is saying, well, I'm the holistic one as if you are not taking a look at the whole person. And so what does somebody usually mean when they're saying holistic psychologist or holistic doctor? And how does that compare to somebody who's a psychologist or a doctor? (laughs) Great question. So I have some I guess there are opinions, really. So, um, because there's no standardized holistic practice, right? That doesn't that doesn't exist. Um, so, what I think is happening as it relates to the word holistic and how that's being used as a sort of identifier for practitioners is that that word is being used to signal to consumers and potential customers that their approach is potentially more superior than other doctors' approaches because what it subs- what it assumes is that they're doing something more advanced and more individualistic than other doctors who are trained. And, I mean, that really couldn't be further from the truth, actually. So um, it's really a marketing term at this point. It's really a term that identifies that person as part of the wellness sphere. Um, I usually see that holistic practitioner sort of also, there's a certain template that I usually see. If someone is a holistic practitioner, the typical recommendations are simply lifestyle modifications. That's very standard practice for them. So it's meditation, it's exercise, it's diet, it's community, it's getting out in nature. Those are the consistent recommendations from holistic practitioners as if nothing else exists 
so I actually, it, it's, it's, it's frustrating, but I, but the way that I think about it is actually is that holistic is just being used as now as a marketing term and it's, it's being misused and abused to manipulate people's thinking that again, that they're doing something more advanced, more modern, more individualistic, more caring than other doctors are actually doing. Mm-hmm. That's where the kind of root cause term comes in also is right. Like we'll get to the root cause as if your other therapists or physicians haven't attempted to get to the root cause. But then often that comes with a hefty price tag of do 50 different tests and then we'll give you 50 different supplements. So it's a whole, it's a whole thing, this, this sphere. But I think the way you describe it is very uh, helpful in that this is a marketing term so that people can just be aware of that. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it really doesn't indicate anything else. Um, if anything, it would indicate what you just, what you just outlined, which, which is the, the, the template that they're using is our un, not validated testing, right? That these tests are not validated that these functional med- medicine practitioners are using, and they're providing you with supplements that are also unregulated based on unvalidated tests. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild. It's wild. It is wild. And it, I mean, I guess makes sense when you think of human nature, as I'm sure you often do is, you know, social media be- keeps becoming more and more saturated. And so people are looking for a way to distinguish themselves and stand out. And so I guess that's a very human trait to do, but at the same time, then what are the implications of these messages? Exactly. Exactly. It's, I don't, maybe that, I mean, I'm, I'm biased. I understand. I know my own bias in the sense of I am biased against the wellness industry. So I, I know I feel a certain way as it relates to that. And I, I do think though, um, that it's not innocently being used anymore because I do think that, uh, people in the wellness industry and also people like myself who are who under are trying to understand this landscape a little bit more on, on social media, especially is that we know more now what that term is sort of like trying to actually indicate versus like you talking about your process as mm-hmm. a clinician, you know? Right. What are some of the other big misconceptions you see just kind of circulating social media, some big red flags that people could be aware of? I'm sure there's a lot. <laughs> There's definitely a lot. There's definitely a lot. Um, so I think it's helpful sometimes to think about these broad behaviors because then people can can flag them and really start critically assessing whether what, what this behavior actually is. So one behavior is simply a sort of asserting a panacea for something, right? So diet is one of those things that's used very often as it's a panacea for all inflammatory conditions, for all your mental health problems, for all your skin problems, right? It's it's something that's being marketed as this panacea for multiple conditions. That's a big red flag. Another red flag are, are certain, I would say, bold claims that have a lot of certainty. So one that I see often that I try to critique a lot online is your gut health is integral to your mental health. The research does not show that as of yet. 
we, we have no real understanding, no real good understanding of what that is actually yet. But that's a really bold, certain claim that is misused and abused. So a lot of bold claims with certainty is another red flag, I would say. And other things that I think also that are sometimes what people are omitting are big red flags. So for instance, if someone's not talking about all these other factors that influence one's mental health or health, like social determinants of mental health are real. So financial situations, whether or not people have access to good health care, right? I mean, these are these are real influences that if someone's not talking about or not addressing as part of the overall picture, I would say that's that's also a really big red flag. So I think that there's these certain behaviors that you can look at so that you can make a certain assessment about, is this person really trustworthy based on the kinds of messages that they're saying beyond just their education, right? Um, looking at the language that is used with these messages, I think is also really important. So hopefully that helps people sort of take a little bit of a broad step um, to look at behavior rather than just like specific posts, you know? That's, yeah, that's really helpful to kind of, you know, do a little digital decluttering every once in a while. I always know that when I do that, and I don't know, I just feel better <laughs> when I look through who I'm following. I don't even follow that many people and unfollow. And I'm just like, okay, that feels good. I have kind of less content here. It almost starts to feel like a job sometimes when you open it up and you see, all of those stories. And it's like, Oh man, watch all the stories. I mean, it just can feel like a lot. And so yes. a digital decluttering, I think can benefit all of us. And those are some really good, uh, parameters you kind of gave us to look for based on the second one that you said, I do see that all the time of gut health is integral to your mental health. And as you were describing that, I was thinking that doesn't even really make sense in the current landscape if the majority of people are eating a standard American diet or maybe, you know, have too much reliance, let's say, on ultra processed foods or for one reason or another, and maybe their mental health is perfect. I mean, that would suggest that everybody who's eating a lot of processed foods then should not be mentally sound, right? Like exactly. I don't understand the implication. Or if somebody's eating a really great diet and they're feeling depressed, that shouldn't be happening at all then, if that's exactly. the case. Exactly. Yeah. So when you when you and this is the point I think that is important for for people is like when you take time to just think through some of these claims, you can get to this point where you're like, actually that doesn't really make any sense, right? Because because it doesn't, because it actually doesn't. Um, yeah, so that so that's that's a good point. So it, it's just trying to actually sometimes that's what you have to do is you have to just take a pause and think, is this logical? Does this actually make logical sense? Right? right. Because even just doing that can help you potentially detox even more. Anyone, another just big one just to throw this in there is that if anyone is making these claims that are going against the consensus of the field. Huge red flag, huge red flag. Um, it does not mean that they're right. It means that they're going rogue and they're trying to garner attention, usually to try to sell their book or sell something. Let's say sell this idea to you. 
or in whatever their sort of solution is. So that's a really another big one where I would say if they're going against the consensus of the field, they're likely incorrect. And I mean, I'm sure you have seen this type of advice strewn about for people who are content creators, where I have been told by marketing experts, create shock value, right? Like say things that shock people or scare people. And then that's the post that's going to get shared and reshared and all of the comments. And that just feels so yucky <laughs> to me. I would never do yeah. that. And so it's probably why I don't have as big of a following. And it's sometimes crickets on my page because, you know, if you're saying kind of the boring tried and true stuff, everybody scrolls by of like, yep, yeah, I've heard that before. But then somebody will say something like, I know you posted about people who say gluten and dairy cause leaky gut, increase inflammation and lead to depression. So somebody posts that and then everybody, they have everybody's attention and everybody's thinking, oh my gosh, I eat gluten and dairy. Now I'm going to get a leaky gut. It's going to increase inflammation. I'm going to start getting depressed. I mean, that's what stands out. And so coming from my perspective, and I'm sure yours as well as a content creator, I just see it so clearly now when somebody's trying to use this shock or scare tactic, I know exactly what they're doing. Exactly. Exactly. It, and it's true that that that's taught as a marketing strategy, or even I'm sure you've heard this too, right? Speak to their pain points. Yeah. Right. And it's kind of awful when you think about that. Um, especially if it's being used in a manipulative way to sell something, let's say that doesn't have a lot of standing to it, doesn't have a lot of evidence to it, right? That, that I would say that that's unethical to actually do that. Right. So yeah, it's social media is, is not garnered, or let's say it's, it's not a great place for education. It's, 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 it's entertainment. And it's true. All of the accounts that are huge are the ones that do all of these things that I'm saying to look out for, right. Which Mm -hmm. is make these bold certain claims, really make these inflammatory statements about, about things. Um, so, and those are the ones that get really popular because they play on people's fear. So. Since I just dropped the gluten and dairy causing leaky gut bomb. Can you address that one? Cause that one is very big. The whole leaky gut inflammation, depression, specifically, I think with gluten and dairy, but also like processed foods and artificial sweeteners get lumped into that often as well. Yeah, certainly. So there is no human evidence that suggests that if you eat gluten and you don't have any sort of medical condition that would preclude you from doing that, there's just no evidence that suggests that gluten or dairy causes a leaky gut. There's also very, you know, there's a lot of question marks. I know I'm not, I'm not a nutrition professional, but I know that there's a lot of question marks related to leaky gut and what that even means. Um, so, but yeah, gluten and dairy are not inflammatory for people who don't have an allergy for people who don't have an intolerance. If you have no intolerance, no allergy, there's really no harm in eating gluten and dairy. And in fact, there is some research that suggests that going on a gluten-free diet when you don't have to can actually lead to certain nutritional imbalances because of the foods that have gluten in it also tend to have, it could be whole grains, B vitamins, lots of minerals. So they could be actually very nutritious. Gluten is just one element, you know, to a product. So, but yeah, people do not need to fear that if you don't have any sort of intolerance. You mentioned kind of the weak connection between diet and depression. What if somebody's listening and they think, okay, but I don't necessarily struggle 
with depression. I have more anxiety. And I know there's a lot of messages also spread about changing your diet to help with your anxiety. Can you tackle that? Yeah, that'll be even shorter because there's like, (laughs) there's like no good research on diet and anxiety. There's even, there's so much less research looking at the relationship between diet and anxiety in humans. I can't even, I I almost want to say there's less than, less than five studies actually looking at this, um, or at least less than 10. And the evidence is extremely weak. There's almost no real relationship that's there. Now that's going to be individually different, you know, from person to person. There are, there certainly can be um, certain foods that may increase a person's physiological response, which then can lead to feelings of anxiety. So for some people, caffeine does that, right? So, so for some people, they become really jittery. They actually feel very anxious, right? And all that means is to decrease your caffeine um, intake or to not have caffeine or, you know, to really significantly decrease it or not have it after a certain time. There's also potentially um, individual differences between um, blood sugar responses. So, so some people do experience anxiety-like symptoms and that feeling of anxiety when their blood sugar drops very low. And that can be also a quote-unquote simple fix in the sense that that could be um, making sure that your timing in between meals is, is different, or let's say that the kinds of meals that you're having to make sure that they're um, you know, appropriate with regards to your macronutrients and making sure you have a more balanced plate. So, but those are the only things that potentially can cause anxiety-like symptoms for people, but there's really no outside of that. There's really no research looking at a dietary pattern over time and that potentially increasing anxiety symptoms or an anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. What questions do you currently have or hope get researched in terms of diet or mental health? Like, are there any emerging areas that you think are pretty cool that you're excited to follow the research or you hope new research begins in a certain field? It's a good question. I, I would love to have another effective intervention. I mean, as a clinician, I only want more effective tools in my toolbox to help my patients. Right. So it would be great if we discovered something related to diet as it relates to mental health conditions and that actually being effective for for people. Um, It's what's kind of, you know, I do think the research related to potentially the gut microbiome and what that could mean for mental health is interesting. I mean, the only thing we know are associations and potential relationships, but we really have no idea what it means from a clinical standpoint. Um, But I do think it's, it's interesting and again, I hope maybe something positive can come out of it. I mean, it would be fantastic imagining if there was some kind of probiotic strain that you could, you know, give to people to help reduce their depression, let's say in addition to psychiatric medication. So I think that that is, there's, there's, it's interesting, but I, but again, it's, we just don't have any real information there. There was a very interesting study that I had sort of recently come across. Mediterranean diet is used very often in studies related to looking at diet and depression. It's typically the Mediterranean diet. And there was one study actually done in a Swedish population of women. um, And this was a prospective cohort study. So they looked at these women over time and asked them to, uh, over the course of several years, fill out food frequency questionnaires. And also they used the outcome as 
a diagnosis of depression from an inpatient, like, and that meant um, if they were admitted to a hospital, that would count as a, a diagnosis for depression, or if they also were prescribed SSRIs. And so they had two different outcome measures. They used a broader definition of depression, which they uh, defined as getting a diagnosis of depression from a professional. And the more narrow definition was having that and getting S, uh, prescribed SSRIs. And what was interesting in their analysis is they split up the two groups. They split up the groups, the women um, for 50 and older and 50 and younger. And so they looked at the associations that were there, if there was an association between diet and depression over time. And what was interesting is that under 50, there was basically no relationship. So women that adhered to a more Mediterranean style pattern there was really no relationship to that and then developing depression over time. But there was a, a relationship with women over 50 and it was actually a decent relationship. So, and what, what they reported in their results section was that women who most adhered to a Mediterranean style pattern who were over 50 actually had an 18% decreased risk of developing depression over time, which is, which is very interesting. Um, so that that's, I don't know what's, why that is. I don't know why that is happening, but it, it stood out to me because it was a stronger effect size than I've seen in other studies. And also their analysis was more careful and thoughtful in the sense that they split up these two groups in age. And I, I've never seen a study so far that looks at this relationship that actually did that. So I think that's, that's interesting. And I think that that potentially makes sense to keep exploring because that could have a, a lot of utility for an older population. I think it's really good too. The point you make and reemphasize, I guess, is that you want all the tools in your toolbox as possible. So these other practitioners who maybe make it seem like you hope there's no dietary connection or you, you're rooting against a strain of probiotic, that's not the case. You're just waiting for compelling evidence before you change the way you practice. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's what this is. I'm a, I am a, I came from a graduate program that was a science practitioner model in the sense. And what that means is that research informs clinical practice. And so I, yeah, I'm looking at the research carefully and deciding based on what's actually happening, right? Like what actually makes sense for people to do? Everyone has limited time and limited resources, every person. So why would I prescribe something that has a low chance, right, of actually happening versus things that I know already, right, with a lot more certainty that would have a way bigger bang for a person's buck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think very well said. One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? I, the word that came, that comes up for me is self-compassion. So I, I think self-compassion is a really powerful like health behavior tool that people it's really underrated, but that people can use. And what, and what I think about that and how that means is that you don't have to be militant about changing your life in order to invest in your health. You, you just have to do things more often, right. Over time and consistently. And I think one of the biggest ways that you can do that is learning how to be compassionate towards yourself about how do you fit these things into your existing life, right? Like we all have certain responsibilities we all have different circumstances. And in order for us to actually engage in health promoting 
behaviors and activities over time, I think we can do that with a lot of self-compassion. And I think that that would, that will lead, lead to that. I already mentioned your Instagram. Uh, I think I mentioned it. Yeah. That you have all these posts, uh, some of which we touched on. It's fantastic. I mean, you, you do a great, great job curating what you speak to. And I feel like you're always kind of staying on top of the, the big, uh, I don't know, the headlines or <laughs> whatever people are posting that is not necessarily based in research, you you call it out pretty quickly. So I highly recommend that everybody follow you over there. But where else can they follow and find you? Yeah, so on Instagram, on Instagram and TikTok at Feed Your Mental, all one word. And then I do have a website, it's feedyourmental.com. And on there I have some blog posts that are way more in depth. So if people are like interested in some of the details of this, I have much longer um, blog posts related to the research. And also um, I have a course, it's called Building Mental Health. I just edited it. So it's, I, I tried to make sure it was in tip top shape. That's something that you can find there too. And that's really all about education related to modifiable factors. Um, so a lot of what we talked about today is included in there as well. So that's where people can go. Awesome. I didn't know you were on TikTok. I'll have to follow you over there. Yes. It's a yes. whole different like world, right? Oh my God. I feel old there. Like yeah. I really do. I know. It's very different from Instagram where you have kind of more of a community and then TikTok, just random people see your stuff all the time. And I don't know. I find the comment section. I mean, it gets crazy on TikTok. It's, 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 different... a, it's the wild, wild west there. It really is. <laughs> it's yeah. a whole different beast. I have to stop myself because I'm like, Brooke, nobody ever accomplishes anything by arguing in the comments. And I just have to shut it down. But it's so hard sometimes. I know. It's You just want to keep saying something and get the last word. But uh, yeah, it's it's a fruitless effort on TikTok for sure. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, thank you so much again for being here, Nicole. I learned a ton. I know my audience did as well. And we're all looking forward to staying connected with you off air. All right. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.